values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, appreciate you spending some time here with the show. If you're in town for the Super Bowl or the WM Phoenix Open, uh, we appreciate you checking in with us. Uh, we have got, we're going to have the afternoon show out there. Gatos and Chad will be out at the Super Bowl experience today, uh, downtown at the NFL experience at the convention center. Uh, we'll be back out there on Friday. It, it's just been a great week for all of us here. So if you're from somewhere else, we appreciate you coming. Thanks for spending your money. Um, and we appreciate you visiting here. And, um, I want to talk about water. If you're, if you're not from Arizona, it may seem funny to you or odd to you that this big conversation about water is happening, but it makes sense. We live in a desert. There has been a severe drought for a long time. We are seeing uh, Lake Powell and Lake Mead at, at historically low levels. I believe it's historically low, but at about 30%. So it's very low. Now, what's, what is good here in Arizona? As we were hearing going into the monsoon season, we have a rainy season here in Arizona. It's very humid for a couple of months, and it's, it's called monsoon. It's when we get a lot of the yearly rainfall is very small here in Arizona, um, in the desert especially. And we get the majority of it during monsoon. Well, we had a very wet monsoon, and the experts were saying that that's a good thing. But where we really get the benefit, if we're going to get any help in this drought that we've seen, it's going to have to be a wet winter. Well, in Flagstaff in northern Arizona right now, at last check, they were about 40 inches above a normal winter for snowfall. Which means we're doing very well. If we see this in Colorado where we get our water from the Colorado River, uh, it, w- it will help. Now, everybody keeps saying we're not out of the woods, and we're absolutely not. But Arizona, I've been here for 28 years now, and over the 28 years that I've been here, Arizona has done a remarkable job of water storage where we take our rainwater, our water runoff, and we store it underground. We capture as much of that water as we can. Well, we are in a – in an agreement with seven western states in the Central Arizona Project and the Salt River Project, but on water agreements. And when it gets to certain low levels, there are concessions that have to be made. Well, the first one that makes concessions, or one of the first states that makes concessions, is the state of Arizona. Even though we have done much better than any other state, this is the agreement that we had to sign into because we needed California in the agreement. They're the largest state. They ended up having to not give up much. But as many people would think that California being, you know, the reputation of environmentalism and that they would be the environmentalist leaders. They are not when it comes to water. Uh, They had these horrible storms in the last few months and you're having people lament then even now California is not very good at capturing that rainwater and storing it underground. Much of that rainwater is it devastates, it floods, but it runs into the ocean and they're not able to capture it and hold on to it. And that's what the frustration from places like here in Arizona. Arizona are. We're a desert, but we're one of the fastest growing areas in the country. And the concern is that we're not going to have the water long term. No one's concerned now that we are going to run out of water short term, but we're talking long term solutions. Senator Cinema is uh, talking about this a water caucus with the 14 senators from those seven states and uh, what solutions they can come up with. California doesn't want to concede anything. The senators in California are there to do a job for the citizens of California. So it's going to be tough to get them to make concessions. But one of the things that was disappointing from, from the point of view, even a Democratic congressman in Greg Stanton here from Arizona – saying that the president should have addressed the water issue. Now, I understand it's only seven states compared to the others. Um, 
And so it's a smaller number of states to take a few moments to talk about it. But it's one of the things that people were hoping that he would address. And will the federal government have to intervene in all of this and help make a decision on what happens with these seven states in a water agreement? Arizona has been proud of itself and should be that we saw this problem coming decades ago. Uh, Former Senator John Kyle uh, of Arizona has done the yeoman's work on this and, uh, and deserves so much credit for securing the water that he did and uh, the visionary that he was on this topic. And um, when we look at our future in Arizona, the one thing that's worrisome to me anyway, and I think to some of the experts, is this water issue. Um, We've got the climate. We have right now the tax policy, I believe. We have, um, uh, you know, Danny Seiden over at the Chamber of Commerce and the conversations in relationship with the governor's office. And it doesn't matter if it's a Republican or Democrat governor uh, with the legislature and being business forward and making it a climate that's not just tax policy, but a lot of other things that make this a great destination, not just for business, but industry. And so we are positioned well in Arizona, at least we feel like we are, that we are in a good position that if there is a recession this year, we're going to withstand it. The chip industry and the expansion here with Intel, who has been a staple in Arizona business for a long time, and a huge investment in the East Valley we know about the Taiwan chip company that is going up in the Northwest Valley that is having that in part of the of the valley explode. So for us in Arizona, we're excited about our future. We're excited about the, the situation we're in now, our present and our future. The one thing that concerns people is having enough water. We have a housing shortage here. We're trying to catch up and build more affordable housing and housing for people. But we also have to have a plan to show that there is enough water for 100 years when you build something, and they're going to have some issues with that. So what is the long-term solution? There have been proposals of a desal plant in Mexico that pipes the water into the U.S. That's going to be very expensive if that's the route that we go. But they also are talking about a pipeline, like you would have an oil, oil or a gas pipeline, having a pipeline from either the Mississippi River or the Missouri River um, areas and piping that water into Arizona for our long term. Again, an expensive proposition. Water would be more expensive, but would those either of those be an answer? We are doing a good job. In the short term, we are not going to see any kind of a big issue, but they're worried about those long-term solutions. And that, to me, is a big issue. Both Senators Kelly and Cinema have, have both are optimistic, but we have got to make an agreement. We have got to get to the table and make an agreement on water rights in Arizona and keeping those water rights uh, and making sure that the new development, if you go towards the West Valley, and I apologize if you're listening not from Arizona, that some of these references, but to the people here, you understand the West Valley and the East Valley exploding in growth and uh, what we are going to need to make sure that they have everything they need moving forward. Uh, Coming up in a moment, we're going to shift to the economy because on the economic front, um, we've got a mixed bag of news, Um, some of it good, some of it not so good. So we're going to examine inflation as it is coming down. But what will it do to interest rates? We'll talk about those things coming up here in just a moment. Strong 
values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, appreciate you spending some time with us. Uh, this is terrific. Joe Coy, the comedian, is heading to Footprint Center on May 5th. Tickets are on sale now, but you could win a pair by visiting the contest page at KTAR.com. If you don't know who Joe, Joe Coy is, I'm jealous of this show. I want to see. He is one of my favorite comedians, and he is going to be in town. That's a cool project and a cool contest. So get over to KTAR.com on the contest page. Um, I want to talk about the economy for a moment. The Fed chair, Powell, says inflation is starting to ease, but interest rates are still likely to rise because even though we are seeing an easing of inflation, there are two things. One is the job market is remaining fairly – is very strong compared to last month's numbers. But we are not seeing inflation come down enough. It's not getting down to the zone to the area that they want it. So there's a mixed bag of what's happening. I want you to hear one on the on the downside. Zoom announcing layoffs. This is uh, ABC News with a report. This time it's Zoom cutting around 1,300 employees, which is about 15% of its workforce. CEO Eric Yan blames it on overhiring during the pandemic, saying in a blog post that the company made mistakes and didn't take enough time to assess if it was growing sustainably. It's a familiar theme. Earlier this week, Dell laid off 5% of the company, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and others announcing similar layoffs in recent weeks as well. So the mixed bag here, here's another one. Uber reports record revenue as it defies the economic downturn. So we are seeing some companies remain very, very strong. And with this uh, announcement by Zoom, we're seeing the tech industry having a bit of trouble. So here is also a report. uh, Daria Albinger from ABC News talking about the shift in markets. More signs the economy is adjusting to post-pandemic reality. Zoom is cutting 15% of its workforce, or about 1,300 jobs, as part of a restructuring. eBay laying off 500 workers, about 4% of its workforce in the next 24 hours. Tech companies have been shedding jobs at a brisk pace as more people head back to work and into brick-and-mortar stores. Boeing is also eliminating about 2,000 finance and HR jobs, but it's hiring 10,000 employees in manufacturing and engineering with demand for planes taking off. So the other part of this, and and obviously this is such a complex issue. Uh, The American trade deficit surged in 2022. It's nearing $1 trillion. The gap between what the United States imports and what it exports hit a record as more foreign goods came into the country. The overall trade deficit rose 12.2% last year. The goods and services deficit reached $948.1 billion, its largest total on record, after rising $103 billion from the previous year. Um, And what about our local economy. You know, I we keep talking and I believe that it's true that we remain positioned to be very strong, very strong. Um, so uh, we have uh, this um, strength here is a good thing, but our housing market has what's been a big part, a contributor to our high inflation. For a while, the valley, as we call it, had the highest inflation in the nation. Largely in part to a housing shortage and a huge increase in home values, which was pricing people out of the market. And for the people that were renting, there was a shortage of rental properties as well, as you have that glut of people that usually save money while renting um, as much as they can, get a down payment, buy a home, move on, and those rental properties open or new properties open up for rental. We are seeing less and less of that. So rent remains very, very high here in Arizona. So I don't want to weigh in as far as what's good or bad in this next Story, but I want to bring it to you as a, as a part of our problem. An affordable housing project has caused controversy in Chandler. So um, 
There's a county island along Ocotillo Road near Arizona Avenue, and about 100 Chandler residents packed a December council meeting to express opposition to this affordable housing project. This is that NIMBY thing, and when I say NIMBY, it's not in my backyard. We all understand it needs to be done, but we just don't want it in our backyard. We all understand that we have a great need for transitional housing, like a halfway house for people leaving, whether it's a drug rehab or or prison systems. We know that they're necessary. Affordable housing is necessary. Just nobody wants it in their backyard. That's a part of this. Now, whether or not these are neighbors that are not looking at the greater good, I'm not making a judgment. I'm just saying this is what happens when you have massive growth. We want massive growth. I will tell you why Arizona has done a good job and where I'm going to be very fair and honest. Where I grew up didn't do as well. So I grew up in southwest Florida in the town of Fort Myers where the hurricane hit, where Hurricane Ian hit. And uh, I, I moved there in 1977, I believe, 77 or 78, when I was a little kid, 10 or 11 years old. Um, we moved to uh, southwest Florida from northeast Ohio. So I don't remember much about Ohio, but I remember a lot about southwest Florida. Southwest Florida didn't manage its growth very well. They had a huge growth boom, fortunately for me, in the mid-80s. So as I was coming into in 1985, turned 18, and went into the full-time workforce, that was kind of right right in the wheelhouse for Ronald Reagan and growth. And we saw a growth explosion of housing in in Fort Myers and Cape Coral and the surrounding areas. And in my opinion now, looking back as I go and I drive the streets at home and I sit at the traffic lights and I see the traffic in town and you look at kind of a mismatch, uh, mix, mishmash of uh, buildings and businesses and things and then you drive through parts of town here in the valley and I mean any city you go to, not just Phoenix, it seems like the phrase intentional growth has worked and not it's not perfect. There are some areas that aren't but overall, you look at our freeway system, it has been ahead of the growth in many ways. You know, we've got the, the 101, the 202, the 303, and both 202s have come at a time where their growth is catching up to them. That doesn't mean we don't have issues. That right now the expansion of the 10 at the Broadway curve and there are things that are going on. There are some growing pains. But with largely, we have done a great job here in Arizona of managing growth. It's intentional growth. The same thing has to happen now with housing because I'm watching projects go in. And I'm trying to remember what part of town I was in. I was in a part of town where I was watching uh, multifamily uh places going, apartments or condos going in on a road that was fairly narrow and not much room for width and expansion. And I thought, oh, I wonder what that's going to do to the traffic. Close to the 51, but oh, it was just, and it's go, and going to end up being a nightmare. Doesn't mean it's not necessary. Doesn't mean it's not good. But that intentional growth where we are growing in a way that allows people to do it as easily as possible, but at the same time it's managed. And uh, you it makes all the difference in, a wor- in the world. So if you've been in Arizona for a very long time or you were born and raised here, take a look at what it's like when you travel to other places. I love Southwest Florida. It's beautiful. I can't wait until the beaches are back, Sanibel and Captiva Islands. It's just a beautiful place. But the growth is not the same there as it has been here. Much better planning here, and I just think that we're, we, are, we are benefiting from it right now. Coming up in a moment, we are going to be joined by Anna Gutierrez, the Executive Director of Curriculum Instruction and Assessment at the Buckeye Elementary School District, talking about the great increase or improvement in their test scores. That's coming up next.
strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Education is a frequent topic here on the show. I think that we all have the same desire, no matter which perspective we come from, that in the end, we the best thing we can give our children is an education that allows them to learn for the rest of their lives. Uh, making sure that a young person, whether they go on to higher education, into the workforce, into the military, whatever they choose, that at any point in their life when they want to do something different, they have the skills that are necessary to continue to learn. Um, I've talked about my path. I didn't take education seriously until I was out of high school. And so for me, it was a pathway that once I got into the trades as an electrician, I had the skill set to do the math that I needed to be able to do to read things. And coming into this industry, it is so reading intensive. Had I not had those basic skills, and I am so thankful for the teachers I had as a young boy, that when I finally buckled down and took life seriously, I had a skill set necessary to ex- to excel. And that's a great credit to the teachers that were there for me. And I think we all want to provide that for our children. So I saw a story earlier this week or late last week about the Buckeye Elementary School District. And it struck me for two reasons. Number one, great news and test scores. But number two, my grandchildren, all five of them, live in Buckeye. And so this is great news for my family as well. So joining us right now is Mike Lee, I believe is the superintendent, and uh, Araceli Montoya, who's the executive director of the uh, the program out there um, in, in Buckeye. This is the executive director of the Momentum Project. Uh, welcome to both of you. Thank you. Good morning, Mike. How are you? We're super excited to be here. And thank you so much for taking the opportunity to really showcase public education and some of the great work that's happening. Um, thank you for, for doing that for us. Well, I think that a lot of people are coming from different perspectives on what ha- needs to happen in education. We're all concerned about the drop in test scores in math and reading uh, during the pandemic. They were already fairly low, but to drop even further was worrisome. So I wanted to report on the good news. And I also think it gives an opportunity for other districts to take a look at maybe what you're doing in Buckeye and see how it applies in their district. So can one of you explain how this happened and what led to these improvements in testing? Yeah, and I also want to thank you for the opportunity to be here. Um, and I, I do want to clarify, I'm the assistant superintendent. Um, well, I gave you a promotion. <laughs> yeah. I, I tell you, I don't deserve it. But I do appreciate the opportunity to speak. Um, and we are doing some great things in Buckeye. And I, I want to start by, and Dr. Matoya can go into a little bit more of the specifics, but I, I want to start with the um, with the commitment that the staff uh, demonstrated um, through this work. Because anytime you're doing school improvement, work. Um, It requires a real clear vision about your current reality, recognizing what it is you're doing well or not doing well, Mm -hmm. and then being willing to face that reality um, and not hide from it. So taking a look at the data, digging into that data, looking at what it's telling you, what's the story that it's telling you, and where do you begin? And so with um, the work that we began, and actually some would argue during the worst of times with the, the, the COVID challenge, um, we managed to actually um, really uh, make some incredible gains. And it started with that, that ground um, effort of recognizing where we were looking at that data um, and then leveraging the talent that we had in this district, um, providing them the training that they needed. And most importantly, and what is often missing um, in improvement efforts is the, the support, um, the, the financial resources. And that's where Project Momentum was, was, a, was a huge asset. Um, and then just having a committed staff that said, we're willing, no matter how hard this is, um, to look that reality in the eye and start to make some significant changes in how we do business. And I know Dr. Montoya 
we might go into a little bit more of some of the details of that work. Yeah, that's the. I think that's the key here for for me at least is some of the details of what you did differently because to see a dramatic change for the good is what everybody wants to see. But you know, everybody's going to want to know how. Right, right. So I can give you just a little bit, some, some more granule kind of look at, at what we're doing um, or what, you know, what we did and what we continue to do. One of the big pieces is that we started to look at, like, what systems did we have in place? Uh, for example, if we think about the master schedule at a school site um, and, and uh, really being, being able to clearly define what should literacy look like in our classrooms and have that be consistent uh, throughout all of our school district. That was one of the pieces that we started to look at. In addition to that, we also started to do the same work around mathematics. Right. So you talked about like thanking your teachers for the work that they did. But there is there is a great importance in having that consistency across uh, a system as a whole so that all of us know clearly when we walk into to work with the teacher um, or to provide feedback that we're always really clear about what should that instructional block look like? What does quality look like when we think about literacy instruction? Um, And each at the individual grade levels, obviously, because when you go into a kinder class, you shouldn't be expecting the same type of literacy block that you would in a middle school block, for example. The same thing with mathematics. So we started by clearly defining that, you know, what what should that look like with the master schedule and clearly defining that across the system as a whole. One of the other things that we did was we established um, collaborative teacher time so that teachers across the district, across content and grade levels would get together and have some conversations about what should instruction look like, what should and how are we assessing our students and having some conversations about what is it that we're seeing that our students can do and what is it that we're seeing our students can't do um, and addressing uh, those pieces. So we're doing that. And this is something that I think that's different um, here in Buckeye in that we're not just doing it at the individual school sites, but we're doing it at the district level as well. So both in, in combination. And then we also did some additional work with our kids in, in, in that in goal setting, too, so that they clearly understood this is where I'm at. This is where I need to be. And this is what I need to do to, to be able to, to, to get there, clarifying that work with our students. So that was uh, additional work that we did um, as well, that goal setting piece with, with our kid that with our kids that really we feel like we really made some impact. And students are never too um, too young to be able to do that. Some Absolutely. people will say a kindergartner cannot articulate their academic goals and we can prove them wrong uh, right. with one visit into a classroom. Yeah, you know, the old adage I was taught as a, as a young person is that uh, until thir- up to third grade, you uh, learn to read and after third grade, you read to learn. And, and that adage has always stuck with me because I remember being a good reader as a young person and that was a sense of pride for me as a young person that you know that academics were important to me when I was younger not so much in high school but when I was young it was it was very important to me and it's something that's right. lived with me forever because when I did start taking life seriously I had the tool set to learn and that was so important yeah yeah that's additional work that we're doing it's, it's interesting that, that you mentioned that particular point Mike because I think when we think about school improvement we typically think about the tested grades, right, third through eighth grade, because that's what we have quantitatively that we can point to. So here in Buckeye, we do pride ourselves in that we've done pretty extensive work with early literacy, too, 
So it's not an area that's necessarily forgotten. So it's interesting that that's, that you made that connection because we have done some pretty extensive work around early literacy. And, and although we're not able to see that yet, in our um, in our school in our uh, AASA the state assessment, we are seeing um, our kind of internal assessments around early literacy and and making an impact on that area too. It goes back to that idea of teachers having a very clear understanding of what you know what that literacy block is supposed to look like well, uh, would- for them at their grade level. I would like to stay in touch with both of you or with all of you in Buckeye and see how the progress continues. I'd love to have you back on to talk about this in the future. But I especially wanted to say thank you because it's nice to have good news about education to talk about and some positive things. So I appreciate it so much from both of you, and I hope you'll come back. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. All right. Thank you you both. That is uh, from the Buckeye uh, Elementary School District in good news and test improvement in test scores, which is what everybody in Arizona wants. And hopefully other districts around Arizona are going to look into these programs. And, you know, it's not a one size fits all. But what fits your district to improve what's happening? So I want to say thank you to them for coming on. And we'll obviously be talking a lot more about this in the future. Why did one Arizona lawmaker block a gun safety bill? And what is it? We'll talk about that coming up in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. There was a piece of legislation proposed um, by Jennifer Longden, a Democrat, a gun violence survivor, and it's a bill that she sponsored in order that is for gun safety. Here's what it would do. It would be anybody that has a gun has to have a trigger lock device or have it locked in a safe. It could be a, a biometric, you know, a fingerprint open, whatever. But you would have to, if you had a gun in your home, you would have to have one of these safety devices where it's locked in a safe, stored away, or have a trigger lock device. Uh, the violation of the law would amount to a $1,000 fine. The head of the uh, military affairs... And Public Safety Committee, Kevin Payne, a Republican from Peoria, said, uh, nope, we're not even going to hear the bill. He said if someone needs to get to their weapon in an emergency, they don't need to be undoing locks. So a story written, uh, this was uh, overwritten by uh, Joe Dana, says, according to the gun safety advocacy group, every town. Now, let's be honest. This is not a gun safety advocacy group. This is a gun control group. This is a group that just doesn't like gun control, doesn't like guns. But let me tell you, I want solutions like everyone else does. Okay, I have had a bunch of different situations in my life. Um, I was married. I had uh, the girls living with us when they were teenagers. Um, I've had grandchildren living in my home that were very young. And now I live alone. And I have when we had kids in the house, we didn't have guns where kids could get to them. We made sure the guns were put away. Now I live alone and I'm not as although the gun safe is valuable when you're not home because, you know, if somebody breaks into your home, you don't want them being able to take your individual guns. You want them to be in this heavy safe that can't be opened so that people don't steal your firearms if you have a break in. But when you're home. You should have the guns accessible if you need them. And again, I'm not paranoid. I don't expect a home invasion. 
I've got a security door in the front of my house that I think is kind of cool looking, but it's a security door. So it's not that you can't kick in my front door. It's going to take you a little longer to get in my house. And if I'm home, I want to be able to have the time necessary to get to a firearm to protect myself. But the questions here in this about the bill, what if you have – and there's a couple of the what ifs, the what ifs in all of this. Um, I'm going to to read just a couple of these what if questions. if someone needs to get to their weapon in an emergency, they don't want the they don't want to have to be undoing locks. But someone said, um, asked about the concerns that teenagers or mentally ill individuals get access to unlocked guns. What if you're right? Then that you should have a different set of rules and circumstances depending on that. If you have somebody that is <clears throat> mentally ill, if you've got and when I say that, I want to be very fair about that because mentally ill is one of those phrases that encompasses so much. It's like saying someone is sick. Uh, do, do they have a cold? Or have they been diagnosed terminally ill with a disease? There's a the, So sick doesn't sell it. Milit, uh, mental illness is not something that has a blanket cover of dangerous. Let's be honest. I want to be fair, and I don't want to stigmatize. But if there is somebody in your family that's suicidal, homicidal, you're not sure what they're going to do, they're not sure what they're going to do, then you have a different set of rules in your home. A, it's almost impossible to enforce. And here's the other part of this I want you to think about. We always talk about the disparity between the rich and poor. We always do. Well, the more times you do things like this, they want to levy a severe tax on firearms. Well, poor families can't afford them then. It, those biometric lock safes are not cheap. I'm not saying they're not valuable. And in many people's homes, they are absolutely valuable. But it's the law saying you have to have one sometimes puts an unfair burden on people financially. And how do you enforce it? You Then what you have to do, let's be fair here, in order for you to enforce this law, somebody has to break it and the police have to know about it. Generally speaking, your gun's not locked up. Somebody in your house either takes it to school or misuses it or accidentally discharges it. So the police are called. Then this can be enforced. So it's not curing the problem. And again, I am a law-abiding gun owner. And if you make a law like this, I will follow it. The people that are truly the problem when it comes to firearms won't. They don't care about your laws. They're already criminals. I want gun safety. I want people to be safe. I want them to remain safe. What I don't want is to go after the wrong people. That's why I don't agree with these laws. Why we can't have a civil conversation without being told that if you oppose laws like this, you're more in favor of convenience than you are saving lives is an absurd statement. I just laid out some pretty reasonable re- cases for that this thing is not helpful. And that's just where I stand on these issues. Um, what we're going to do coming up just after 10 o'clock is we are going to talk about the State of the Union address. The president talked about inflation, gas and oil, immigration, taxes. Uh, we're going to let you hear a little bit of all of it and let you decide how the president did. Next.